Hello, I'm Oliver Wang. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. Welcome to a special prequel episode of Heat Rocks. One year ago, in December of 2016, I invited Morgan and University of Oregon musicologist Lauren Kajikawa to tape a test episode for a podcast idea I had. What if we picked an album, invited a guest, and then do a deep dive into it? That idea, of course, blossomed into Heat Rocks. So you might call this our prequel episode. The format was similar, but not quite identical to our regular show. So we decided to save this as a special one-off for our listeners. And it was Morgan who figured out when we should put it out, which was today. Morgan, why this date? Glad you asked. It's because today is the 25th anniversary of the release of the album that we talked about, Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Yeah. Hell yeah. With me today to help take big puffs of the chronic in the analytical sense. Joining us from the University of Oregon is Lauren Kachikawa, Associate Professor of Music and author of Sounding Race in Rap Song, which appears on UC Press. How is it going, Lauren? Pretty good. Pleasure to be here. So we decided to roll with The Chronic for a few reasons. First, the album turns 25 this year, which is a bit sobering to realize, at least for us olds. Second, it's such a groundbreaking album in reshaping our sense of what hip-hop could sound like, least of all from the West Coast. And I know this is a theme that Lauren talks about in his book, and we'll certainly revisit that point later. But first, Morgan, do you know what we need? What do we need? We need some context. Instructions don't lose the context. The mix when I flex the context. Can't understand, write it down, learn the context. Let me put it back in proper context. The Chronic was Dr. Dre's first solo album after leaving NWA and helping to start up Death Row Records. It came out in mid-December of 1992, which possibly qualifies it to be the greatest hip-hop Christmas album of all time. I don't know about that. It would go on to dominate the rap airwaves in 1993 alongside the Wu-Tang Clans, Enter the 36 Chambers, and Tribe Called Quest, Midnight Marauders. It was also one of the first major albums to come out after the L.A. Rebellion and the truce between the Bloods and Crips in L.A. in the spring of 1992 events that the album both alludes to and in many ways is a response to as well in other words the chronic may be a party album but it's a party taking place after a series of momentous events where to politely paraphrase dr dre and snoop the gangsters took over and last but certainly not least the chronic was the first so-called hardcore rap album to get widespread radio play and i think this is something that lauren you have something to add here right yeah, I think the amazing thing about this transition moment uh, is that, you know, NWA's rise to fame and, and, you know, platinum album sales, the miraculous thing about it was they did all of that without any support from traditional media outlets, like no radio play. And that was, you know, Jerry Heller's big problem when he was shopping the group around was that, you know, the big record labels looked at him like he was crazy because how are they going to sell any records if they can't get any of those songs on the radio? I and mean, they were able to do it despite that through non-traditional marketing and, and just word of mouth and really create a buzz around the group. But The Chronic, unlike NWA, had these radio-friendly tracks, which I, I know we're going we're gonna to break down in a second. And on the strength of those, The Chronic was able to bring the sort of gangsta sensibility to a more mainstream listener because of the more radio-friendly sound. Right. And you couldn't ask for a more obvious example than that than the lead single from the album, which was Nothing But A G Thing. One, two, three. 
Three and to the folks, Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip shit up. Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Compton and Long Beach together, now you know you in trouble. Ain't nothing but a G thing, baby. Too low death niggas, so we're crazy. Death Row is the label that pays, man. Unfatable, so please don't try to fake this. But, uh, what were your initial impressions when you first heard this single? And Morgan, let's start with you. I think my first impression um, was that it was funky, uh, that there was a new dynamic duo that had emerged. Um, I also thought, you know, everyone get ready for the West Coast because here we come with our sound that's super organic and our lifestyle. And this is not to say there weren't, you know, West Coast records, West Coast singles before, but this sort of set the tone for sort of like the the lifestyle around rolling in my 64 not just rolling in your 64 but the lifestyle surrounding it and since i grew up here i was used to hearing this sound i was used to hearing the ogs rolling down the street bumping oldies i was used to funk i was used to soul i was used to rare grooves this was the sound of music played at picnics at world on wheels so it it, it felt very organic to la and and i think la possessed this album and particularly this track and particularly this video as sort of a historical moment in time time um if you want to put la in 1992 in a sound capsule part of that would have to be this track and also the video that went with it so i was immediately uh, drawn back to my youth and lauren how about for you uh, i think my first impression was that it was good party music you know fairfax high school class of 1994 represent <laughs> but you know being a teenager in, in la at the time um, this was really bumping out of a lot of cars uh being played on walkmans and discmans you know remember those um uh, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, it was it was everywhere. Every every kid that was lucky enough to have a car, have access to a parent's car, uh, seemed to be playing um, the song. But I got to say, honestly, for myself, um, even though I write about the the chronic in my book, I wasn't a big fan initially. Um, I don't know. I think I was a self styled rebellious teenager, so I was I was more into the L.A. hip hop scenes alternative to the Chronic, which would have been uh, you know Freestyle Fellowships Inner City Griots, you know, which came out in 1993, just a few months uh, after the Chronic in April. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that because I was living in the Bay back then and listening to mostly New York East Coast hip hop, so your tribes, your De Laws, etc. Uh, was not really checking for anything that Dre was doing. And I think part of that also was the fact that I considered myself to be much more of an Ice Cube listener. And because Cube and Dre, or at least Cube and NWA had beef, I just was not going out of my way to listen to whatever Dre was doing. So for on several levels, G-Thing was just not likely to hit me. I think it really took me the better part of a decade to rediscover and re-embrace the chronic for what it is. And while I would never deny that G-Thing is a Stone Cold classic, it's still not a single that I ever find myself wanting to listen to just um, on a whim. So I suppose old habits die hard. In any case, Lauren, I want to come back to you for a second here to, to have you explain on a musical level, what exactly is Dre doing here that we now recognize as being so innovative and influential? I have to say, most importantly, just that laid back groove, which for nothing but a G thing is an interpolation of Leon Haywood's uh, 1975 song, I Want to Do Something Freaky to You. first thing I hear is that the kick and snare pattern, just this laid back groove. It's almost like a bossa nova or a slowed down samba. Uh, and, and to me, this kind of groove really feels like a departure from New York. 
especially if we're talking about bomb squad style beats that are anchored by, um, you know, those frenetic high energy break beats. Also, the way Dre created and, and EQ'd this beat was different. He didn't layer up a bunch of samples like the bomb squad, right? Like the bomb squad would just put loops on top of loops on top of loops, creating those really famous, uh, dense, noisy textures. Bass, how low can you go? Death row. What a brother know once again back is the incredible rhyme animal, the incredible beat. Dre's approach was different. He brought studio musicians in, in and had them re-record all of the parts from I Want to Do Something Freaky. And if you listen to the two side by side, you actually can re- you, you quickly rec- recognize that this isn't just a straight sample that Dre looped. This is actually a re-recorded interpolation that he's manipulated in the studio. And the best example of this is that anthemic hook, you know, which is which Dre plays on the Moog synthesizer. But in the Haywood original, you hear it on these really lush strings. So instead of that sort of disco era lush strings, you know, Barry White, you know, Sound of Philadelphia uh, lushness and and all of that kind of um, all those connotations, Dre brings back that sort of sensuality and that laid back groove, but with a twist, right? It's it's more like Bernie Worrell, you know, is playing it. Let's take a listen to what you're describing. Here is the Leon Haywood original again. And here's the Dr. Dre interpolation that Lauren was just talking about. So not to take too much away from Dre, but Lauren, you've written also about the fact that as much credit as Dre gets for creating, innovating, pushing this particular sound that we've been talking about, it some, sometimes obfuscates the other people who were also pretty key in helping to develop this too, right? Oh, most definitely. I think the main person that, that gets overlooked here is above the law is cold 187, Greg, Gregory Hutchinson is his born name. And a lot of people claim he's the true innovator of, of G-Funk. I think it's tricky in any, you know, as, as a putting on my musicologist hat, it's tricky to give sole credit for any musical innovation to a single person because musicians don't operate in a vacuum, right? They're part of communities, part of networks where ideas are constantly being exchanged, sounds constantly being exchanged. And it was no different for Dr. Dre. He was working in the studio. He was a co-producer on Above the Law's Living Like Hustlers, which came out in 1990. And if you listen to the title track of that album, there are some things that give you pause. For example, uh, that track, Living Like Hustlers, features the 16-count hi-hat, which is played on a drum machine, but it sounds like it's set with a slight swing effect, so it's got this sort of lilting bounce to it. And it also features a vibra slap, which I can't think of any hip-hop record prior to this one in 1990 that used that instrument Um uh, it gives the whole thing a kind of, you know, laid back 70s black exploitation vibe. So now listen to Nothing But a G Thing again. And what does Dre add to the Leon Haywood groove that isn't in the original I Want to Do Something Freaky to You? He adds a 16 count tambourine. And a vibra slap, neither of which are featured in Haywood's original, and they help give the entire groove this more relaxed, laid-back uh, vibe.
So I think this approach really made it possible for Dre to get this clean separation of frequencies. Each instrumental layer in the track is pristine and, and just really pops. And, you know, if you've got a, a nice sound system in your car, you know, you got your tweeters and your, and your subwoofers and all of that, the kind of separation of, of frequency that um, a good audio system in the car allows, all of these you know, layers and different frequencies are really cleanly separated and it sounds great. And, you know, Dr. Dre famously tests all of his beats in, in his car, right? Before he, that the sort of a part of the production process for him. And uh, one of my colleagues, musicologist Justin Williams, has written an article where he actually compares uh, Dr. Dre's approach to music production to customized car culture um, and the way in which every part of a, of a, you know, 64 Chevy, as Morgan's already alluded to, would be, you know, you know, customized, polished, rebuilt, and then reassembled uh, in a way that was never, um, you know, the was sort of like better than the original, kind of a hyper real version of of, uh, of the original car. Dre sort of doing that to Leon Haywood's beat, and of course, you know, as Williams points out, right, the the '64 Chevy and sort of customized car culture is a big part of the the visual imagery i know we're talking primarily about sound but you can't forget the video which was playing non-stop you know on the box or on mtv at this time um which you know it, it both let me ride and nothing but a g thing you know dre in a 6-4 cruising around los angeles is, is a huge part of this and so i think williams is really onto something uh, with that with that comparison I was going to ask about this later, but I think it makes sense to talk about now, which is the chronic as, as Lauren, you were just alluding to a moment ago as being very much a car album. And I think that's both in terms of the, obviously the imagery of the automobile, the fact that it is taking place in Los Angeles. And a lot of what we see in the imagery from the album um, is them driving across different parts of LA. So what more can we say about the chronic as an album that you're supposed to listen to while driving? It's hard to separate L.A. from the car culture. That was Sundays on Crenshaw, cars rolling down, and the cars were um, bonded together by crews. All the Suzuki Samurais were together. All the Impalas were together. All the Cadillacs were together. All the trucks were together. And so those scenes that play out in the video, if you're from L.A., you remember that from Sundays. You remember that from Saturdays. And the tone, even in Ice Cube's video, Good Day, when he's escaping the police, he's escaping in an old car. He's not, this is not the Audubon. This is a dude rolling at, you know, drive time speeds. You know, you think, man, okay, you'd expect him to be going a little bit faster, but that's California. That's also the thing to me that separated us from the East Coast, whereas by the time the Wu-Tang came out, you know, all we could think about is where's this magical place called Shaolin, right? Everyone's walking and everyone's on the subway. The car culture was as important to the chronic as it was to the city of L.A. and the state of California. It was about how we roll. It's the weed. It's the just like the video. It's that somebody at the barbecue is packing. And in the video, it's the guy turning the <laughs> turning the steaks. But that's just what I remember about L.A. And that's why um, I think this was best listened to in the car, high. I mean, I wasn't high, but I think it would be best listened to, uh, you know, from that vantage point. Morgan, I think the statute of limitations is probably passed at this point. So, you know, if you, okay. if you want to cop to it, it's all good. Yeah. 
If you listen to some of Dr. Dre's earlier production on this second NWA album, or I guess maybe technically it's considered the third one, basically the one they recorded after Cube left, you can actually, I mean, you can definitely hear some of his experiments with synthesizers, and he's beginning to develop the sound that really blossoms more fully on the chronic, what we now call G-Funk. Why do I call myself a nigga, you ask me? Well, it's because motherfuckers want to blast me and run me out of my neighborhood and label me as a dope dealer, yo, and say that I'm no good. But I, I felt like G-Funk took over in a remarkably fast period of time. I'm wondering, as someone from L.A., was that your impression as well in terms of the speed at which it influenced um, other artists in the area? Absolutely. And uh, one of the things that sticks out to me the most is the Brat. When the Brat came out, everyone was saying, wow, you sound just like Snoop. It was the same flow. It was the same speed, which was surprising because she was from um, Atlanta. I think that people embraced this G-Funk, P-Funk sound because people were, one, missing Parliament Funkadelic. And two, I think that it wasn't just the sound. It was the crew. It was you were embracing Dre after N.W.A. And sort of he was he was in the forefront now as the maestro. And then Snoop was cool. He was just a cool character. And so he was the the face of that sound. He was the face of that movement um, beyond Dre. And it was like, OK, the West Coast became cool again. This lifestyle became cool. It's it's ironic that as far away as Atlanta, people were imitating this sound, but they were. And I just think it, it's a testament to what. Dre and Snoop and Death Row were selling and it, it was a sound and it was a lifestyle and I think that was catchy and timely. And I mean just to interject for a second too I wonder I mean since you were in Atlanta I wonder you know to what extent that also influences what you see you know Outkast I mean it's it's only a few years later that they have they come out with a sound that's heavily based around Parliament Funkadelic as well and I mean it, it, it speaks to a certain kind of southern identity but it's no I mean it's it's just seems like more of a more than a coincidence right that um that that's also in the wake of of the chronic I'm glad that you mentioned Outkast because there's a a real Atlanta dialect that it was the first time on when I heard on the Outkast album I was like man I know what these dudes are saying but it's a thick it's a thick Atlanta dialect and everyone used to say that about LA I had no reference point because I was from here except when I listened to other albums and I was like well there is sort of a Snoop does have sort of this dialect remember he introduced all these all these terms he introduced that Drizze is a we hadn't heard that before we even had a presidential candidate uh come out of this album right <laughs> right <These> nuts <laughs> Exactly. These were things that we hadn't we hadn't heard before. And so I think, you know, to an earlier point, why this went over well was because they were selling a a lifestyle, a language, a car culture, you know, a folk hero in uh, in Snoop, uh, you know, that emerging star and the maestro who was uh, Dr. Dre. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with Heat Rocks. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Helen Hong. Yes, J. Keith Van Stratton? What's the difference between a layover and a stopover? I have no idea. What's the difference between optimal and optimum? I have no idea. What's the difference between an actual conversation and a promo for our new show on Maximum Fun, Go Fact Yourself? Nobody has any idea. Go Fact Yourself, the game show with celebrity contestants, super smart experts, and answers to questions you've never even asked. Listen twice a month on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And be in the audience for our tapings of Go Fact Yourself in downtown L.A. It's free. Go to GoFactYourPod.com for more info. We're having a very realistic conversation. Yes, we are. 
Should The Rock run for president? How about Oprah? Why was pitch canceled? Does Ryan Murphy ever sleep? Settle a bet for me. Who's hotter, The Thing or Squirrel Girl? How can I take part in the Summer Book Club? For answers to these questions and so much more, come on over to Pop Rocket, a pop culture roundtable show with me, Guy Branham. Winter Mitchell. Margaret Wappler. And Karen Tongson. Catch us every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you decide to get your podcasts. I'm not going to judge. <laughs> What I find interesting is that in our collective memory, we really think of the chronic as being songs like G thing, like Let Me Ride. So with that G funk sound that we've been talking about, but at least a third, if not half the album is stuff like this in the background, which is lyrical uh, gangbang, which to me just sounds like some straight hard shit. Uh, you know, something that you could easily imagine in that same era, you know, Onyx screaming over, right? Well, I think those some of the other songs get overlooked because of the strength of of nothing but a G thing. I mean, it's just it's just so classic. The sound is so classic. But I think you you have to take um, the chronic as uh, an introduction album not only do we meet a brand new dre you know um but we meet snoop but we also meet the other cast of characters that make up death row records and i think why it's important to remember those songs is to remember that it was death row. We've got a whole crew. I mean, where the East Coast had ciphers, the West Coast had sets. And this was a lot. This was a set. You got Snoop from Long Beach. You got Corrupt. That's from 60s. You got uh, Daz, I think, who, who's from Hoover's. And then, of course, you got Suge, who was a blood. And we'd always say, how did he get all those sets to <laughs> like, how did it? You can't even get, you know, brothers to get along. That's 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 unheard of. One of my favorite songs from the album that I think represents this whole group set mentality um, is Stranded on Death Row. So duck when I swing my shit I get rugged like raw hit wrecks with fat tracks that fits the gangster type when I recite kind of lethal niggas know the flow that I kick there's no people I'm murdering niggas yo and maybe because of the tone that kicks when I grip the mic and kick shit niggas can't fuck with so remember I go hardcore and slam love respect like a sensei whoop bass like Van Damme I'm staying with the theme of, you know, you got criminals on the one hand, maybe. And on the other hand, behind every prisoner is a story of how they got there. And so I think um, Stranded on Death Row is is important because it tells the story behind the chronic um, outside of just Snoop and Dre. And I think that's that's one of my favorite songs because they stay with the prison motif. Um, but you also meet, you know, RBX, the elder statesman. You meet uh, Lady of Rage, who I call the body because just how she body tracks. You got Bushwick Bill that's been through some things. He's already been shot in the eye, you know, by his old lady. And you're like, yo, you know, <laughs> where you been? You got a young corrupt who at that time is just one of the younger, youngest people on the crew. And I think that's a standout track. Um, because they all identify as being from one cell block 
to the other. And then Snoops slips in this chorus. It would be familiar to a lot of people that grew up in Crip neighborhood, which I did. Um, one of the things Crips would sing, and it's just this chorus that to me is so it, it, it's so unabashedly L.A. and West Coast and Crip that it's just a reminder. Oh, this is not just a band. This is a band that's affiliated, um, and we know what affiliated means. Yo, now you know the path I'm on. You think you're strong? See if you could travel on. Cause all in the week we'll try to speak. Those who are quiet will always cause riots. I've always wondered about this sort of double personality of the album. You know, we we almost completely forget. <laughs> and when we remember this album, it's always because of nothing but a G thing and Let Me Ride. It's not for, you know, rat tat tat tat. Morgan, you've really been, been hammering this point, which is around the importance that Snoop plays on The Chronic. And, you know, him and, and Dre debuted themselves to the world off of the deep cover soundtrack. Creep with me as I crawl through the hood. Maniac, lunatic, calling Snoop Eastwood. Kicking dust as I bust fuck peace. The motherfucking you I always think of The Chronic as much It's as much of uh, Snoop's coming out album As it is Dre's solo debut Because Snoop has such an indelible Central impact in terms of How we hear the songs on here And just the, the new kind of flow That he was bringing I mean you got a 21 year old kid Whose flow, you know isn't like anyone else's. He's he's clever. Some of these lyrics we still remember today. You never know she could be learning her man and learning her man, and at the same time burning her man. I remember hearing that for the first time and being like, "What did he just say?" You can't separate that from the delivery. You have a, a dude that is, um, you know, a real figure who's representing Long Beach. You know, putting Long Beach in the forefront for the first time. And it was hard for me sometimes, you know, separating the myth from the reality. Later on, we'd hear about people being studio gangsters. I don't think he was a studio gangster. I think he was a gangster in the studio. And I think he had, there was a lot of legitimacy to this, to this, which he added. And he was an expert storyteller um, for the West Coast. All albums are made in a particular time and place that if you just kind of dig through it, you can find what those that context is. But the chronic in particular seems to be very much connected to Los Angeles of 92 through 93 because of both what it it discusses on the album itself um, and just sort of the vibe that it creates coming out of this incredibly violent but arguably cathartic moment in Los Angeles, which of course is tied into the gang truce and a sense of new possibilities, despite the, you know, Rodney King beatings and the, 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 the catalyst behind the riots and the rebellion. Um, you know, the chronic seems to be really engaging with all of this. You know, you hear those snippets uh, on certain songs on the chronic, which are, I think, uh, sound bites from post-riot conversations with with people on the street. That's what they told us today. In other words, you're still a slave. No matter how much money you got, you still ain't shit. Sitting in my living room, calm and collective, feeling that gotta get my perspective. 
what was happening politically, what was happening, you know, racially was not lost on this bunch. By the time of the chronic, we'd already had so many high profile police brutality cases. We'd already had we'd had Latasha Harlan's. We'd, of course, had, you know, the Rodney King thing. We had had Ron Settles in Long Beach. We had had um, Leonard Deadweiler in the 60s. We had had Eula Love. But what was going on was not lost on them. And these were kids of a generation that had grown up out of that culture. What happens to young black males in the face of all these things that I just mentioned? And so I think it was um, very timely and, and topical, although the presentation might be different. It may not have been as academic, but what was going on wasn't lost on them. Bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks. Lick on these nuts and suck the dick. Get the fuck out of here. We can't leave a discussion of the chronic without addressing the really rampant and virulent misogyny on the album as a whole. And in some things with the passing of time, especially 20 plus years, things seem more antiquated. They seem almost quaint by comparison to today's hyper whatever. But somehow the misogyny and sexism on The Chronic actually feels as shocking, in fact, more so now listening to it as opposed to when it came out, where this was sort of par for the course for NWA and Dre's other projects. Though, again, I think The Chronic sets impressive new levels to its misogyny. And I'm wondering for both of you, how do you process the sexual politics and the gender politics of this album uh, you know, nearly a quarter century later. No, putting the album in a historical context doesn't make the sexism or misogyny any more palatable. In fact, looking back, I find many parts of this album unlistenable today. And I do think that this is in some ways a kind of sort of the end game of, of a certain brand of, of hyper misogynistic and sexist rap that was coming out of the late 80s and into the early 90s. And that was a lot of NWA's initial appeal, especially when you're not going to get radio play. There was a kind of sensationalism, you know, this kind of like, oh, have you heard this? I can't believe they're saying this, you know, on a record that was a part of the the way that, you know, NWA built a buzz around what they were doing. And a lot of it was meant to be humorous, you know, super sexist and misogynistic. But, but um, you know, there's a humor to it, which maybe I'm just too old for now. But I do think appealed to, you know, young teen, even preteen audiences at the time. And this also, I think, speaks to another point that, that you've raised about the way the album is known for sort of moving gangster rap to the suburbs and to a, a wider and whiter audience. And I think, you know, one way that artists um, transcend race is through sexism at times. And so, you know, you have male artists making music for a largely, you know, male youth, male, young male audience. Um, and one thing that, in a sense, they have in common is, you know, that it can be fun or, or feel, you know, empowering in some way to make fun or, uh, of women or put women down. And I think also you have to understand that this is in the context of Dre breaking from NWA and Eazy-E. And so some of the, the hyper-masculine, super macho, aggressive uh, misogyny here is also, I think, about you know who's the real G uh, in the wake of of their their breakup? You know, who, and and trying to establish dominance and supremacy. And so I think that the sexism and misogyny also um, is related to that. Well, I think for me the difference in thinking about this now as I'm older and uh, like real, you know, grown ass older. So for me, 
it's less palatable because I'm not like bopping to it in my car, bopping to it in the club in the same way that I was then. So now listening to it as a standalone, you know, I, I notice it more, the, the, you know, the, obviously the words haven't changed and the sentiment hasn't changed, but I guess I've changed. And so for me, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily um, throw throw the baby out with the bathwater. I still think it's one of the you know greatest albums, uh, hip hop albums of all time. And you know the aforementioned things that it had, it was big for the West Coast. It was a changing of the guards in terms of hip hop. So I don't want to take anything away from it historically, but the but there is still sexism and misogyny, um, you know, in, involved in the album, especially bitches ain't shit. That's just a hard. None of those. I, I know some people have argued that there's that there's a distinction being made between um, the types of women that are hoes and tricks and the types that aren't. I still think that's just a, a tough song to hear. And I still still see, you know, a side of it that's that's not really favorable to women, particularly in the context of um, this album having women on it. The Lady of Rage, obviously, and, and Jewel. So looking at it that way, you know, it's it's tough. I want to take us to the the end of this conversation by literally talking and thinking about what the long-term legacy of Dre is. And and to be very clear, I mean, I think what your points, both of your points around the sexism and misogyny in the moment still echo and haunt our memory um, of what Dre's legacy will be ultimately. And we saw this crop up with the discussions and controversies around the straight out of Compton biopic because it really whitewashes a lot of his violence and, and other behavior. So what you really have is this very complicated, complex, contradictory portrait of what we think about Dre. The one thing that stays with me simply because we're talking about this album so many years later is that Dre, much more so than almost any other hip hop figure I can think of. I mean, there might be one or two other people, but he has transcended the times in a way where he stays relevant to some degree. He was there for Eminem's rise. He has been there for Kendrick Lamar's rise. Um, you know, practically any artist out of L.A. more or less has to get the blessing of the king in order to be uh, relevant within both the city, but also on a national or global level. So I'm wondering from both of you, when you think back on the legacy of the chronic, what really stays with you? I think years later, we will remember The Chronic as one of the albums that also introduced us to Death Row Records that went on to be sort of, a you know, a big, huge conglomerate, a dysfunctional family and a criminal enterprise. I think we will remember that we met the cast of characters that we came to know as members, as I mentioned some of them, but I didn't mention um, Jewel and I didn't mention uh, Warren G and some of the people that ma- made up this sound. I think this was the first and the beginning of of record labels having a personality death row was one and then around the corner came bad boy and then came murder inc so they became you know it was record labels had a personality there were a bunch of things going on to your point oliver this did predate illmatic and it did uh, predate you know wu-tang and it did predate you know a bunch of other sounds from the east coast but this put the west coast on a on a map we will be remembered for this sound we will be remembered for linking the sound of the 70s funk and soul to hip hop this album i, I can't even believe it's 
it's 25 years old. Like I, I sort of can't wrap my mind around that, but that's I'm projecting because I don't want to see myself as 25 years older. That's another show. But I think this will be remembered for the sound, for the style of it, and for our introduction into this whole world that was Death Row Records and, of course, um, Suge Knight and then later Tupac. Not only does Dre continue to play a role in, in, in shaping the direction of, of, you know, and then careers of, of more recent artists, but it also shapes how we think about what the West Coast was at that time. I mean, the people who stayed with Ruthless Records, right, after the break in the group, um, I mean, that's why we, we don't remember that uh, Above the Law played a role in shaping the sound of G-Funk. Um, I mean, the whole on, on deep cover, 187, I mean, that's, it's, it's a nice, you know, refrain for that song, but I think it's also fair to get, you know, that that's also a reference to, you know, Cold 187, you know, at that time where they're, they're working in the studio together. That's his tagline. And so the fact that we don't even remember, we have a selective image, uh, selective memory of what West Coast hip hop looked like in the late 80s and early 90s um, is in large part due to how successful Dre was in establishing himself as the person through which you know, the gate through which people had to pass. Um, And I I think it, I don't know if that has something to do with um, what he put his finger on with the sort of larger lifestyle that, 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 that was being sold by the album. Certainly. I mean, if you think about how successful he's been with beats, like attaching himself to other products, um, you know, I think he, maybe one of the things that he was, you can give him credit for realizing was that it's bigger than going into the studio and making records, right? His vision for his role in the culture and as a businessman was larger than than making a good album that that and and um so a lot of his attention um you know for good or for, for i mean for better or for worse depending on what your view on it is 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 his ability to look beyond the studio to what it means to you know take really take advantage of the position that he has in the media and, and in the culture. For someone that started as a DJ, this is this is a hell of a retirement plan. I mean, he, he he's come a long way from from a DJ to to a billionaire. And I think the chronic, you know, I can't I can't you know off the top of my head recall you know how many units were sold, but it definitely had a lot to do with his ear um, and his penchant for discovering talent. And I think you can't separate that from from really solidifying this dude as being one the mayor of Compton and two having the Midas touch and the, and the golden ear. we got to wrap up here, but I really appreciate the time from both uh, our co-hosts, Morgan Rhodes, uh, and our guest, Lauren Kajikawa. Uh, Morgan, where can people find you? I'm always hanging out on social media. It is a problem, but I'm, I'm being honest about it. Uh, Morgan Rhodes, you can find me there and on uh, Instagram if you want to you know, talk and share pictures, Radio Morgan Rhodes. And I hang out with, uh, with Oliver Wang one Tuesday a month on uh, 89.3 KPCC, where we talk about music on a show called Tuesday Reviews Day. And Lauren, how about you? Where can people find some more info on you or you can reach uh, and follow me on twitter at, at lauren kajikawa or you can look up more information about my book sounding race and rap songs by visiting the university of california press website which is just ucpress.edu or just google sounding race and rap songs in this internet age shouldn't be hard to find 
We hope you enjoy this special prequel episode of Heat Rocks. Special thanks to Lauren Kajikawa for joining us. Glad that we finally got to share this out there. Heat Rocks is part of the Maximum Fun family, produced by myself, Oliver, and Kara Hart. The prequel episode was edited by Oliver and recorded at his crib. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod, and you can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, also at Heat rockspod.com that's where we will post show notes for every episode including a track listing of everything that you've heard today and other goodies again that's at heatrockspod.com good to see you all good to see you too morgan maximumfun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.